Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Uh, Good morning, Fred. Nice to be with you. Terrific. Well, starting out close to home, Alan, uh, you've testified before the New Jersey State Assembly's Transportation and Independent Authorities Committee on the potential for automated vehicles to provide mobility to the mobility disadvantaged. This is something we've talking about. We've talked about it seems like forever, and I think it would be great for our audience to hear some of what you had to say. Uh, yes, and I, I guess I'd like to repeat it here because um, I think it it somewhat concisely concisely says um, what we've been trying to dis- discuss here for some time. And so I started out with uh, thank you very much for allowing me to testify today on this very important topic of mobility for what I call mobility disadvantage, the young, the old, the physically disabled, and the poor, uh, those that can't afford an automobile for themselves. On a fundamental economic basis, we travel because we wish to improve our utility, our quality of life. As I said to them, I traveled here today because I wanted to be here with you. My quality of life, happiness is improved. Same for each of you. So improvement of mobility fundamentally improves quality of life of the individual. For those of us who are fortunate enough to own and be able to operate our own car, we have at our disposal an enormous opportunity to improve our quality of life at a moment's notice. For ones too young to drive, too old to drive, unable to access or control or too poor to own one of those cars, opportunities are greatly diminished. Living close to a New Jersey bus stop helps a little, but compared to owning a car, think about it. Many low-income individuals don't live near a bus stop. In fact, our low-income housing laws talk only about the creation of low-priced housing that tends to be built on low-cost land, which is low-cost. Why? Because it has low accessibility to things, else it would be high-cost. If it was near a train station, high-cost. Near really good bus service, high-cost. Out in the middle of nowhere, low-cost. Where did we in Princeton locate Princeton Community Village? Out on the very edge of the township on the cheapest land at the end of Bun Drive. Certainly not close to Princeton Shopping Center. You live at PCV, you need a car to get a quart of milk. Low cost housing plus high cost mobility does not equal low cost living. We've ended up locating our poor, our over 55 communities, and many of our low-tech jobs in places that conventional transit struggles to provide even minimal service. We have all heard about automated vehicles. It turns out that if we can make them work well enough to safely drive down our streets by themselves, then they actually become affordable machines that can easily respond to provide auto-like availability and mobility to anybody, even the poor, the physically disabled, the old, and the young. That is the real opportunity to uplift the mobility playing field for the mobility disadvantage to a level that the rest of us auto owners currently enjoy in New Jersey and around the country. What we need, what my ask is, 
that we create in New Jersey a welcoming environment for the research, testing, and demonstration of this technology and work to focusing it on improving the mobility of the mobility disadvantage. A group of us are preparing a proposal to USDOT for $8 million to demonstrate the safe and efficient operation of such a system focused on serving the mobility disadvantage. While such a demonstration is not prohibited in New Jersey, it is not permitted. Consequently, this creates and provides excuses and hurdles to bringing such mobility to our communities and tarnishes any other welcoming effort aimed at enabling New Jersey to lead instead of follow in what may well address the fundamental objectives of this hearing. Thank you. And so that's what I had to say to the, uh, to the committee and, and it's really important. Uh, that in fact uh, this welcoming environment be created and that we uh, tend to remove all the hurdles uh, from the creation of, the, of that welcoming environment and that welcoming environment needs to be at the highest level as well as down to the lowest levels of communities and neighborhoods and the individual streets on which these vehicles would, would operate so that so that they're not thought of as as invading armies or or something that are aliens and key to all that is the perception and and the uh, the uh, realization that in fact these are safe and that that our children are not at risk and that our families are not at risk of these vehicles providing the mobility to 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 people who who really have been um, left uh, along uh, the sidelines in terms of enjoying the quality of life that that mobility can provide. Well said, Alan. And uh, there's a lot to talk about related to this uh, in the latest Smart Driving Car newsletter, you highlight an APA article titled Tech in the City. That's focused on the San Francisco Bay Area and creating a welcoming environment there. Yes, and, and what that focuses on is, of course, the creation of the welcoming environment. But but I like to use, the, you know, the visualization, the concept of a welcome mat. Uh, you know, we all have them in front of our doorsteps at our homes. Uh, welcome. Uh, and in fact, uh, we want our guests to be welcome. But in some sense, um, you know, the mat also says um, uh, you're welcome, but wipe your feet. And in a sense, uh, the, those that are providing the technology uh, should also recognize that, in fact, uh, they need to be uh, to be very affirmative in the provision of mobility. That is what the community would like to have what the community needs, not necessarily what makes them the richest and allows them to come in there and basically uh, run roughshod over, over the society. So there's a sort of quid pro quo that exists. Uh, I, I also like to think of it as a common carriage obligation. Sure, come in, provide the mobility, use our streets, do this, but do it in a responsible way. First of all, make sure that, in fact, you're going to be safe. And secondly, uh, understand from the community what the community would like, what it thinks it needs, not what you think that they need, not what the technology says, oh, this is the way that I maximize my profitability of the technology, uh, but in fact, look to maximize uh, the quality of life and what the community wants. And so there's this this 
interchange this 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 um, uh, affirmation uh, and 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 going in it together, and I think that the, that article talks about um, the technology uh, coming to Silicon Valley, coming to San Francisco, and at times basically saying a hey, lawyer up. Uh, lawyer helping uh, might be a way to get the whole darn thing started if you uh, you know if you're any obstacles but it's no way to make it successful uh, because in the end it has to be again a quid pro quo there has to be a, a an agreement that both parties everybody is in a win-win not just the technology but that in fact it's what the community wants it's not shoved down their throats but in fact it's a working relationship uh to make it the best and, and so i see at least for central new jersey and maybe for the rest of the country the biggest opportunity for this mobility is to serve those that actually need it the most but what we need to do is figure out what is it that that uh, that, uh, that mobility uh, disadvantaged community really needs, and so we have to work with that community uh, to understand what best serves them, and then work to basically uh, craft and reshape this technology such that it provides that mobility, not what some of us, you know, want to ride around sipping our cocktails and asking uh, them, others in the in the vehicle to pass the sweet and sour shrimp. Well, there's an awful lot of work to do on that front, it seems, Alan. Uh, polls may not mean much, but there is a new one from AAA showing almost three-quarters of Americans have a negative impression of self-driving vehicles or the testing of them. In fact, The Verge has a report today that says President Trump has commented that he wouldn't trust a computer to drive him around. Well, yes, and of course, and, and one can't blame people because in some sense, uh, you know, this uh, the, the technology has come out there and, uh, and not uh, properly uh, uh, presented information uh, to the public that, in fact, you know, safety is really important and, and that they're trying to provide mobility to people that already need it. I mean, you look at some of these visions of some of these cars, you know, Volvo saying, hey, you can sleep in, in, the, in, in your first class cabin bed in your vehicle as it takes you from A, and B, A to B. Or you look at the concept vehicle for Mercedes in which you have, you know, uh, three uh, uh, millennials in there that that, that have uh, that are part of the one percenters sipping their cocktails as they're going down down the road. My goodness, um, uh, um, if if that's what we're developing this mobility for, then then I guess I don't want any part of it. But in fact, oh, what this what this mobility to me is 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 um, has a, a potential opportunity. Uh, to to serve again are the mobility disadvantage and you know, of that community, you know that those that that don't have access uh, to uh, jobs uh, that could um, that could actually uh, you know fundamentally change their quality of life and allow them to feed their families. Um, that's the, the kind of mobility that we want to provide and can provide. Uh, once uh, having these things being. Uh, uh, controlled by an algorithm running down our streets, in fact, can serve anybody. And and so, therefore, uh, it can provide that service to, to those folks and the rest of us, too. But it should be focused on, on doing 
uh, and focus on the mobility disadvantage first and then serve us. So uh, I think it, it is gaining, getting a very bad image problem. Why? Because uh, it's, it's almost put itself in the same uh, realm as, as flying cars. My goodness, just what we need, okay? For those that already have tremendous amount of mobility, let's give them more. Uh, well, you know, I think the rest of the folks are beginning to say, or the 75% of the study, which are the regular folks are saying, no, thank you. Uh, how about thinking about just being able uh, to improve my quality of life? And so um, um, I think uh, we need to refocus uh, uh, the technology uh, from one that, that's so heavily focused on, on the one percenters and focus it on uh, really uh, the people whose lives could be most improved uh, by this technology. And of course, uh, safety is at the heart of this and uh, a lot of public concern there. And then people hear about the, the grounding of Boeing's 737 MAX 8 aircraft around the world. And uh, the, the focus there is on sensors and software. So in a sense, all, this is all related, right? This is all related. And, and of course, we had to ground all the MAX 8s. My goodness, uh, uh, nobody's going to want to fly in one if it's going to go crash. Nobody's going to want to ride in these things if, in fact, uh, they aren't uh, safe. It doesn't mean that the implication that there will be no crashes or that nobody will die because that's unreachable. Uh, but in fact, uh, such that they be as safe as we currently drive or safer than that, that's easily achievable. And so therefore we have to, we have to uh, move towards that and make sure that in fact, uh, the information that we provide is both technically sound as well as put in a form such that the, the confidence of the individual uh, can be, uh, can be uh, gained uh, with respect to this technology. And so that's the important thrust that, that, that we need to focus on now. Yeah, we should mention that uh, NVIDIA's uh, developer conference is, is going on this week, and a lot of what they're doing is in the realm of uh, simulation and being able to solve problems before they can hurt anybody, I guess is one way to put it. Absolutely, and I, I know that that's one of the things that uh, Danny Shapiro and the automotive group at uh, NVIDIA has been focused on is, is providing simulation tools. We can anticipate many of the problems. We should anticipate many of the problems and define, uh, design the, the, the technology such that it, it, it addresses that. Plus, every time we have a disengagement in one of these vehicles, we should run those through simulations uh, to understand what went wrong and fix it. That is what is finally being done, I guess, with respect to the Max 8s and, 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 the seven, the, and, and Boeing 737s. Uh, it's about time. Um, they knew there was a problem there. Uh, hopefully, they were working on it, but apparently, they didn't implement it, maybe. And my goodness, uh, they're certainly paying the price of it. Uh, what we need with, for this technology is to do the same thing, which we have been, uh, but to do it in space, to do it even with more effort. And we're not going to be able to anticipate every situation. Some of them we'll have to trip over, uh, but, but uh, once we trip over them, we need to fix them. 
And it's something else that we've been calling uh, for for more than a year here on these podcasts is, of course, the industry should work together on safety, not independently, uh, because it's important to the whole industry. In fact, I think that Boeing, whatever problems they find with the 737 and what got them in in the trouble, uh, they should share with Airbus. Uh, and ma- to make sure that in their airplanes, uh, they don't run into the same si- situation. Why? Because, uh, you know, this the, this MAX 8 problem is not just hurting Boeing, it's hurting uh, Airbus too. And it's basically uh, telling people, oh my goodness, uh, maybe I won't fly. Uh, I'm just going to drive or I'm not going to go. And so that hurts both of them. So in a sense, we need to find ways uh, to uh, work together on safety. And I've also, and we've discussed here with respect to uh, how to do this, what kind of legislation we might need. We might need it, and I trust uh, protection legislations so that it's not thought of as collusion when the industry uh, uh, cooperates on safety, uh, but in fact is, is to try to improve the, the market for the for all the technology to allow us to gain the benefits of the technology. And so that's the important element of it. And um, uh, these companies can compete on a lot of other things uh, uh, besides safety. Safety should be a cooperative effort. Uh, What uh, Waymo learns from its simulations, it should make available uh, to anybody what what uh, GM Cruise learns uh, should be made available to everybody uh, with respect to safety, and, and one should work together. Uh, I know that Oliver Cameron, the CEO of, uh, of uh, Voyage, um, joined with us last year when we were calling for um, a cooperative effort among the industry uh, to share safety information. Uh, we must find a way to do that. Uh, NHTSA, uh, Federal DOT, um, uh, the Congress uh, should be should have that as their primary uh, regulatory focus uh, to get the industry to to cooperate on safety because that's in the benefit of everybody. And it would help to gain the public's trust uh, as well. The more transparency, the better. Absolutely, and, and absolutely. A recent piece in the Washington Post looked at what autonomous vehicles could mean for the Washington, D.C. region, good and bad. And they look at a couple of different scenarios here. I can uh, read a little bit of of each of them. It says, by the year 2040, the nation's capital could be a bustling network of autonomous vehicles with better access to jobs on the eastern and western extremities. Traffic would glide smoothly on freeways. The cars automatically keeping a safe distance by talking to one another, etc., Under another scenario, however, bumper-to-bumper traffic stretches for miles and hits the poorest neighborhoods and communities of color hardest, and most people opt out for the seeming comfort of a solo car ride, even if it takes them longer. And those are two scenarios that I guess we've talked about them at length, too. We've continued to talk about it, and and Judith Greenwald and I, you know, wrote wrote a recent paper about it. it. It all has to do with sharing. And if we uh, design and, and build these technologies and deploy them such that we own them as individuals, uh, we use them three, four, five times a day for our own benefit, 
by ourselves as we currently use our cars. Oh my goodness, uh, you know, we're going to live farther away uh, from where we work. And uh, vehicle miles traveled, which is the key measure, are gonna go, is going to go through the roof. And, uh, and it's going to be a real mess out there. Uh, however, um, if we can find a way with, with this technology to create it as, as a fleet of vehicles available to us as, uh, as needed, and, uh, and we share them when, it is, uh, when the demand uh, suggests it, uh, then all of a sudden um, the congestion disappears. Uh, because instead of having uh, two, three, or four vehicles out there, uh, there's only one with two, three, or four people in it. Um, I'm uh, staying here in this uh, in this hotel, 18 floors. I don't know. Half of the trips I've taken in the elevator have been by myself. Other, you know, 25% of them have been with one or two other people, and a few percent of them have been with three or four. And that's why elevators uh, operate effectively in the building, and uh, and everybody seems to be just um, just uh, happy about it and 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 content. We have to figure out how to do that horizontally, uh, with respect to our mobility system, and it can be done with with driverless vehicles. We just have to create them in a way such they're such that they are are uh, open. And, and welcoming to shared riding. And shared riding is the key. And uh, we have to get over this concept, oh my goodness, I have to be in my vehicle by myself um, uh, to have any kind of, uh, of, of mobility. It's, it's, it's not workable. Uh, we're just, um, uh, there are too many people on this planet. Too many of us have decided to crowd ourselves into uh, too little land on our in our cities and communities, and the way to make uh, all of that living uh, be be much uh, uh, more enjoyable and happy is to just share rides when it's appropriate. Two o'clock in the morning, hey, you can go by yourself. Uh, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, gee, why don't you uh, share a ride with some of your neighbors? Speaking of ride sharing, ride hailing, lift is setting a $62 to $68 price range for its IPO. Everybody knew this was coming. To raise up to $2.1 billion, that would give Lyft at the higher end a valuation of $18.5 billion. Uh, I guess that's that's somewhat of a reasonable number for them to shoot for. Again, you know what makes them worth $18.5 billion is is for them to uh, be able to evolve to a driverless mobility model. Otherwise, uh, uh, they have uh, real problems in growing uh, and scaling, uh, and they have real challenges in in keeping it affordable. Um, We've all been benefiting for uh, inexpensive uh, lift rides and and promotional rides and so on. Why? Because – of the coming uh, uh, IPO and, of course, the investors uh, um, uh, wanting the valuation to be as large as possible, which is proportional to the number of people who are using it, not the profitability. Um, Post-IPO, then those investors are going to be looking at the profitability of the whole operation. So guess what that means? 
you either lower costs or you uh, increase uh, uh, the cost of each ride. Um, uh, lowering costs can only occur in a, in a substantial way if you go driverless and if you get to driverless. Uh, otherwise, the only other way to, to get there is to increase um, the cost of each ride. Um, and if you increase the cost of the ride, then you have challenges with scalability. Uh, so, um, so the real focus of the whole thing is going to have to be uh, uh, how does Lyft um, begin to achieve driverless mobility, which they could. Uh, and if they implement it, then, of course, um, absolutely buy. Uh, if you don't think they're going to be able to implement that, then um, uh, then think about it. Yeah, and, and Lyft's larger competitor, of course, Uber, is expected to go public very soon as well. Uh, that's correct. And I guess uh, at least uh, from their expectations uh, or what uh, Goldman Sachs uh, has been uh, maybe suggesting, uh, they're going to be looking at a much bigger number. Again, uh, uh, they might suggest that because they have much more of a world focus uh, than Lyft, maybe um, uh, they can achieve that. Uh, uh, but uh, boy, it's tough to it's tough to have a world focus with this. Um, it seems as if um, uh, much of this mobility um, has to deal with with local issues, and one wants really wants a local provider. So, um, somebody uh, somebody other than Didi serving China, I doubt it. Um, uh, India, uh, I doubt it. Um, um, for those that are focused on USA and and maybe Western Europe and Canada. Um, um, that's the market that they should probably stay in. Well, before we go, we want to remind people that the uh, Smart Driving Car Summit is less than two months away now, coming up fast, Alan. Uh, yes, and um, and with respect to the summit, I think uh, one of the things that uh, I'm now scrambling to include in the summit is a, is a, a series of, of demonstrations of the technology and uh, having a number of the players bring vehicles uh, and provide um, uh, an opportunity for folks uh, to uh, kick the tires. Uh, there hasn't been, there essentially hasn't been an opportunity for anybody in the New York metropolitan area to do such things uh, before uh, and, and certainly not in New Jersey. Uh, so uh, we're looking to be the uh, a, a first in doing that, uh, but um, but if we end up doing that and having the demonstrations, um, uh, there they will be there will be a priority of having those demonstrations um, be made by by those in the uh, mobility disadvantaged community and um, those that that support uh, that that community. Um, uh, as we've discussed here and discussed earlier, um, that's my interest in, in our interest in terms of, of the, the initial, um, thrust, uh, of this technology and its deployment. And what we'd like to do at the summit is begin to better understand how this community, 
uh, would react to the technology and what this community really needs in terms of mobility. And one way to do that is have them experience it. Uh, so if, if we really do the, the demonstrations at the summit, uh, they will be focused on uh, the mobility disadvantage uh, on a priority basis. And um, if there's uh, any time left over, then we'll deal with the millennials and the, they're sipping their cocktails and the passing of the sweet and sour shrimp. Well, there's going to be more info for anybody who's interested at smartdrivingcar.com. Head out there and learn about the summit coming up in in mid-May. That is it for this edition. And you can find us at that same site, smartdrivingcar.com, on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and more. Wherever you find your podcasts, ask your smart speaker to play us too. You can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for tuning in.